Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 70 of the show, and it is a fantastic episode for you. Uh, We just had uh, men's and women's NCAA March Madness college basketball tournaments come to a close, so we'll get into a recap of all that. Uh, We have the NHL and NBA seasons winding down with the NBA season closing out this weekend, so we'll do standings updates and playoff previews there. And then in Major League Baseball, opening day has arrived, so we'll do a season preview there with some predictions for each division. And then most importantly, it is Masters Week in the PGA Tour, one of the best weeks, if not the very best week all year on tour. So we'll get into that, which is actually where we're going to start. We're going to start off in the PGA Tour, and last weekend's event was the Valero Texas Open, and that was at TPC San Antonio, the Oaks course, which of course is in San Antonio, Texas, par 72 Distance was 7,438 yards. Now, the course itself was very um, flat, wider fairways than than we're used to seeing. The whole course itself, between all 18 holes, only has about 100 total feet of elevation. So it's a really flat course. Uh, The downhill holes, they usually play into the wind, while the uphill holes uh, play downwind. So interesting there for... um, you know, that course design, but um, the field itself for this thing was very average. There were some big name players out there, Rory McIlroy, Bryson DeChambeau, Hideki Matsuyama, all of which had their own issues. We'll get into in a second. Jordan Spieth was out there returning defending champ, Uh, but there were a lot of newcomers, new faces in this event. Uh, All in all, there were 20 of the Masters participants teeing it up this week with the possibility of 21, depending on who won, uh, because there was one spot left in the Masters for this week's winner if they were not already qualified. Um, This was Rory McIlroy's first time in eight years teeing it up the week before the Masters. And I mentioned those big names with him being one of them. McIlroy missed the cut, uh, just played like complete crap all week or the first two rounds. Bryson DeChambeau also missed the cut. And then uh, Hideki Matsuyama, ended up withdrawing due to a neck injury, which has his status for the Masters in doubt. Of course, he is the defending champion there at Augusta. Um, the tournament was kind of tough to watch, right? Uh, we, we came off the uh, World Golf Championship Dell Technologies match play the week before, which was a big tournament, a lot of big names. And, of course, we got the Masters this week. So this tournament was kind of sandwiched in between those two. Um, very uh, you know, average field. Like I said, it was very similar to the players. I mentioned a few episodes ago, the players' championship was tough to watch just due mainly to the weather delays, but due in large part to the the lackluster 
top of the leaderboard. And that's what we saw again this this week. And it, you know, at the end of it, J.J. Spawn was your winner at 13 under par. It was his first career victory on tour. Um, he, you know, nobody really, he's not one of the guys that you might know. He played really good golf all weekend. He opened up with a 5 under 67, uh, followed that up with a 2 under 70, and then closed over the weekend with back-to-back rounds of 3 under 69. So very good, consistent golf all weekend. He actually won by two shots over Matt Jones and Matt Kuchar, who were 11 under par. And then uh, there was a four-way tie for fourth at 10 under par. Adam Hadwin, Troy Merritt, Charles Howell III, and Bo Hostler. they were all at 10 under. And then uh, there was a handful of guys at 9 under, which was good for T8. And that was Keegan Bradley, Matthias Schwab, Gary Woodland, Brendan Todd, and Dylan Fratelli, who is a Texas Longhorn. He's very familiar with uh, TPC San Antonio. So as you can see, I just mentioned, you know, roughly 12 golfers there. And uh, you may not have recognized more than a few names unless you're an avid golf fan. And you probably recognized a few more. But nonetheless, um, all the big names really didn't do that well. Um, you know, Tony Finau was probably the biggest name that you might recognize. He was all the way down at six under par. So, uh, again, just because of the uh, lackluster top of the leaderboard, it was, it was kind of difficult to watch. You know, I mean, it was still good golf. The course itself was still pretty challenging. Uh, 13 under is one of, one of the higher scores we've seen, you know, in the first uh, three months of the season, believe it or not. So, um, you know, but all in all, like I said, it was a good tournament. It was just kind of one of those, it's a buffer week, right? A lot of guys, a lot of the big guys uh, already went to Augusta to practice and play, uh, you know, at Augusta National to get their practice rounds in. So, um, it was just kind of a, an odd tournament, you know, it's sandwiched in between, you know, two big tournaments, which kind of takes away the luster a little bit of this tournament. But that brings us to this week. It is Masters week. Uh, this weekend's tournament is the Masters. It's at Augusta National Golf Course in Augusta, Georgia. It's a par 72. Distance is 7,510 yards. All right. The course itself, obviously, you've seen it. It's one of the most iconic courses out there. You know, holes 11 through 13 are known as Amen Corner. Uh, if you watch golf, you know that. Uh, but this year, there have been two major adjustments to the course uh, since last year's version of the Masters. And it involves extending two holes, all right? The par 4 11th hole and the par 5 15th hole both have been lengthened, all right? The par 4 11th hole, uh, there were 15 yards added. So, Instead of playing at 505 yards, it now plays at 520 yards. And the par 5 15th is 20 yards longer. Instead of playing at 530 yards, it now plays at 550 yards. So that just plays into the hands of the the big hitters. And the field itself for this thing, obviously, it's one of the best we'll see all year. Uh, J.J. Spawn with his victory last week, first career victory on tour, he was able to secure the very final spot in this field. But we'll have all of the top players in the world out here. And in addition to that, the legend, icon, Tiger Woods, uh, has declared himself a game-time decision. He was there all last week practicing at Augusta. Reports have indicated that he's looked very good, um, all things considered. He has not played 
competitive golf since his car crash where he fractured his leg. He did play in the PNC Championship with his son a few months back, uh, but that's, uh, that's not as competitive as an individual event, especially one such as the Masters. So um, my indication, obviously this recording is going to, you know, is happening before we know the exact answer, but uh, I would believe Tiger Woods to be out there. Uh, if I had to place a bet, I would say that he is going to be a participant in the Masters. Now, with the way that some of the top flight players in the world are playing, uh, I do not believe that Tiger Woods will be competitive, but just the fact that he's out there and if he can make the cut, I think he would take that. I think that is going to be a win for Tiger Woods if he can do that. So keep an eye on that story as it develops. Now, last year's winner was Hideki Matsuyama. He won with a score of 10 under par, which was the highest winning score at the Masters since 2017. Okay, now I mentioned Hideki Matsuyama withdrew this past week in TPC San Antonio with a neck injury, so uh, he too would also be considered a game-time decision. Now there's a bunch of storylines coming into this Masters. It involves a lot of the top players in the world. All right, Scotty Scheffler, he's now officially world number one. And he is that because he's won three of the last five events that he's played in, including his last event, which was the World Golf Championship, Dell Technologies Match Play. So he's looking for his first career major. He just won his first uh, WGC event. So uh, he is the hottest player in the world right now. I I don't understand how you can win three out of five tournaments um, at at this level of golf, but he has done that. He's number one in the world. And um, the only thing really missing on his resume at this point is a major championship. So uh, if Scotty plays the way that he's played over the last month and a half, I certainly believe he's capable of winning that green jacket. Uh, Cameron Smith, fresh off of his win at the Players' Championship, is looking to become only the second player in history to win both the Players and the Masters in the same season. The only other person to do that uh, was Tiger Woods in the mid-90s, okay, so he could join some elite company there. Uh, His game seems to be in great shape as well after that performance there at TPC Sawgrass. Rory McIlroy, I mentioned him uh, after missing the cut, just a complete horror show there in San Antonio this past weekend, missing the cut. He is making his eighth appearance in the Masters, uh, eighth try to win the career Grand Slam. He's won all three of the other major championships, The only one that he is missing is, in fact, the Masters. So um, I don't feel confident about Rory, especially the way that he played last week. But that's how Rory is. He'll he'll play like that one week and miss the cut. Then the next week he'll come out and dominate. So I I can see Rory uh, competing in this thing. Colin Morikawa, he uh, won the most recent major championship, which was the, uh, the British Open or the Open Championship. All right, that was uh, last fall, end of the summer, I guess you could say. He won that, so that was the last major. He's looking to become the first person since Jordan Spieth in 2015 to win back-to-back majors. All right, so uh, Morikawa is ready to go on that. And then uh, three-time winner Sam Burns. All right, he's jumped all the way up to number 11 in the world golf rankings. Believe it or not, he's actually making his Masters debut. He's won all three of his victories have come within the last 12 months, um, two of which were uh, at the Copperhead course there at Innisbrook. So 
Uh, he's not played since then. It's been a couple of weeks, so he's had some rest. Uh, he's a legitimate young player who can contend on a weekly basis. And um, the way that he's been playing, again, certainly would not shock me to, uh, to see him wearing that green jacket on Sunday as well. And then 37-year-old Luke List, all right? He just got his first career victory a few months ago at Torrey Pines in the Farmers Insurance Open. He is making his return to Augusta National after a 17-year absence, okay? The last time he played at Augusta National was in 2005 when he was an amateur. He was the low amateur that year, and uh, he's never qualified for the Masters until this year with his victory at Torrey Pines. So um, he will be making his... Uh, return to Augusta. It has changed quite a bit since he's been here. So, uh, But he's he's another one. Sneaky player. I'm not saying he's going to be in contention. I don't think that he will with the big names that are on this list. But those are uh, just some of the major storylines as we get uh, ready for the Masters. Uh, again, just one of the best weeks in golf. Uh, if you watch golf, you watch the Masters. I don't need to explain to you how special it is. Just the whole aura of being at Augusta, uh, the, the course itself, the green jacket, everything about it makes it the most special tournament of the year. And I'm very much looking forward to this weekend. Uh, tournament starts on Thursday. We'll go through Sunday where we will crown a Masters champion. So uh, I will be tuned in all four days very heavily, especially now that March Madness is out of the way. So uh, we will do a, a full recap and breakdown of the Masters on next week's episode. But move over to the NCAA and college basketball. We've been covering men's college basketball throughout the tournament. Uh, we last left off previewing the Final Four. Now, we'll, we'll cover the women's real quick uh, here in a minute because they their championship game was the other night. But on the men's side, the Final Four. All right, we had a matchup of Duke versus North Carolina and Kansas versus Villanova. Okay, now I had given you... Uh, some predictions for the Sweet 16 and was absolutely horrible in those eight games that I predicted. I think I only won two of them. So uh, I completely understand, again, if you tune me out for these predictions, uh, and I probably should have tuned myself out because uh, I predicted Duke to beat North Carolina and Villanova to beat Kansas. And as you'll see here in a moment, that was um, not the correct choice for picks. So uh, I did predict Duke to win it all. And uh, again, you'll see that that was just a poor decision, which as you can see, my bracket went up in flames after the round of 32. I did pretty well for the first couple rounds. And then after uh, the round of 32, my bracket was uh, the opposite of good, which would be not good. So uh, the final four on the men's side, Duke, North Carolina, Kansas Villanova. On paper, you got four blue blood programs. All right, not surprising to see any one of those teams really, uh, just from program history, in the Final Four. They've all been in and around the Final Four for many years. All right, but because of the fact that North Carolina was an eight seed in their region, to come out on top is what was the surprising factor there, uh, especially because they had to go through Baylor. All right, and. Um, that's precisely why only 0.1% of ESPN brackets correctly predicted the Final Four. Like I said, it just the teams themselves representing the Final Four, not that surprising. But the fact that North Carolina as an eight seed just dominated the way that they did 
is why there were so few brackets that actually correctly predicted that. So uh, their records entering the Final Four this year in program history, Duke was 11-5, and five, North Carolina was 11-9, and nine, Kansas 9-6, and six, Villanova 4-2. and two. Both of these games were at Caesars Superdome in New Orleans, and uh, both were played on Saturday. The first game that was played was Kansas and Villanova, which was a rematch of the 2018 Final Four game between these two teams. Villanova destroyed Kansas in that one, 95-79. They would go on to win the national title. So Kansas sought a little bit of revenge in this one, and that is exactly what they got. Kansas won the game 81-77. Now, they did so because David McCormick, the center, for Kansas, had led the Jayhawks with 25 points and 9 rebounds, and All-American Oche Abaji had 21 points. Kansas scored those 81 points with only 5 points coming from their bench players, which is very impressive. All of their starters were in double figures. And then on the Villanova side, senior leader Colin Gillespie led the way with 17 points. Now, Jay Wright, you know, is a hell of a coach, Villanova head coach, um, I thought Villanova was going to win, which is why I predicted them to do that. But Kansas, man, they just they won't quit. They're much better in the second half than they, they are in the first half. Uh, it was a close game, back and forth. Kansas kind of pulled ahead. Nova made it close. Uh, but in the end, uh, the Jayhawks come out on top. The, the nightcap of, on Saturday was, was the good one. That was Duke and North Carolina. Okay, both these teams are in the ACC. They play each other multiple times during the regular season. But it was their first ever meeting uh, in the NCAA tournament. And they've only actually appeared in one Final Four together, which was back in 1991. They did not end up playing each other that year, which is why this year's tournament was the first time that they've ever met in the tournament. And it was actually the first time since 1998 that both Duke and North Carolina made it to the Elite Eight. So they've they've been in and around. So like Duke and North Carolina have participated in seven of the last Final Four. So basically half of the last 14 Final Fours we've seen either Duke or North Carolina. All right, so, uh, but they've not been uh, playing together. They've never played together in the same, in the same game. So pretty interesting to see. And it was also the seventh time that the ACC had two schools in the same Final Four. Of course, you have Duke, North Carolina with as much as they've been there. Uh, it's no wonder that uh, this is the seventh time that the ACC's had two schools reach that. All right, Coming into the game, North Carolina had just gotten their 130th victory uh, in program history in the tournament, which was the most of all time. So no other school has more March Madness wins than North Carolina. And this game itself, they uh, they added to that record victory total uh, with a 81-77 victory over Duke. So the Tar Heels beat the Blue Devils 81-77. Okay, um, you'll notice that North Carolina scored 81 points to win just like Kansas did. Both of the the, the winning teams had uh, 81 points. Now, on the North Carolina side of things, Caleb Love just went absolutely bonkers. He had 28 points. R.J. Davis had 18 points, and then Armando Baycott, 11 points, 21 rebounds, all right? Uh, just That guy is just a rebounding machine. More on him in a minute. But I mentioned North Carolina's 81 points. It was uh, only two points 
Uh, two of those 81 points came from their bench. So they got one basket from their bench players. Uh, just like Kansas only had five points off their bench, North Carolina only had two points. Okay, just insane from the starters. Uh, Paulo Bancaro on the Duke side, projected top three pick in the draft here in the summer. He led the way for Duke with 20 points, 10 rebounds in what is uh, going to be his final game at Duke. It was also Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, head coach of Duke. Turned out to be his final game coaching. We've known all season that uh, he's this is his last hoorah. But this was actually the 100th meeting between Duke and North Carolina since the Coach K era began. And with this loss, it made his record 50-50 and 50 in those games. So very even split there. Um, North Carolina is now responsible for landing... Um, Two losses on Coach K, right? They they gave Coach K his final home game loss at Cameron Indoor Stadium about a month ago on March the 5th, and then they beat him in his final game ever as a head coach here on April the 2nd. So in, in a one-month time span, North Carolina gave Coach K his final loss at home and his final loss of his career. So probably not the way Coach K wanted to go out, but nonetheless, Coach K, best one of the very best coaches in all of uh, sports history, had 1,202 career wins. He made 13 Final Fours and won five national championships at Duke. So an unbelievable ride there for Coach K. So that set up the national championship game between uh, the North Carolina Tar Heels and the Kansas Jayhawks. This game was the other night. It was also at Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. This was Kansas's 10th national championship game appearance. It was North Carolina's 12th national championship game appearance. It was a fabulous game. Uh, North Carolina got up by a lot in the first half. They scored 16 unanswered points to go up by 16, took a 15-point lead into halftime, and then right on cue, just as they've done all March, uh, Kansas came roaring back in the second half they outscored North Carolina by 18 points in that second half to come back and win 72-69. It was actually the largest comeback in men's national championship game history. And it was back and forth. That second half was insane. Once Kansas started making it close, they traded the lead back and forth, especially late. Uh, Kansas got a big basket from David McCormick, a hook shot to put him up by three with uh, just under a minute left, and Kansas was able to hang on. It was their fourth national championship in Kansas Jayhawks program history, their first one since 2008. Now, if you remember, in the uh, 2020 season, right before the uh, March Madness tournament got canceled due to COVID when it first came out, the Jayhawks were the number one overall seed in that tournament. So they were able to avenge that uh, after that tournament got canceled. Uh, most outstanding player of the entire March Madness tournament was Kansas guard Oche Abaji. Definitely a top 15 pick in the draft uh, here coming up in the summer. Uh, played an outstanding tournament. Uh, in this game, though, the national championship game on the Kansas side, David McCormick, 15 points, 15 rebounds. Jalen Wilson added 15 big points. Christian Brown had 12 points, 12 rebounds. Probably... The MVP on the Kansas side, just because he was able to do on both sides of the ball. And then Oche Abaji didn't need to have uh, a big game necessarily 
with the way that his uh, other starters played, but he finished with 12 points. And then on the North Carolina side, Armando Baycott. I just mentioned him a minute ago, just a rebound monster. He finished with 15 points and 15 rebounds. Those 15 rebounds gave him a total of 98 rebounds in those five tournament games, which is the second most rebounds in the tournament all time. Just uh, three shy of taking the the, uh, record. But um, he probably is one of the most improved draft stocks uh, out of everyone in the tournament. Not sure... Um, if he's declared or when he will declare, but he certainly improved his draft stock with his ability to go up and grab the rebounds. And then uh, some other players in North Carolina, R.J. Davis had 15 points and 12 boards, and Brady Manick had 13 points, 13 rebounds. So I think that's why North Carolina was so very successful throughout the tournament was their ability to go get the rebounds and get second-chance points. And so uh, they were a just complete buzzsaw um, you know, I don't know how many people actually predicted North Carolina to get out of the second round because that was when they played Baylor. But North Carolina just showed up and showed out. And uh, fantastic tournament for the Tar Heels. Coach Hubert Davis for the Tar Heels. It was his first season as head coach. And I think you can comfortably say that he will be in Chapel Hill uh, for a long time as head coach. Um, on the women's side, real quick, I know we have not covered any women's uh, March Madness stuff, but... Um, South Carolina Gamecocks, they are your national champions. They beat the UConn Huskies 69-49, to a huge 20-point victory in that national championship game. That is the Gamecocks' second national championship in program history, and uh, they did so very impressive fashion. Of course, legendary UConn head coach Gino Ariema, he was previously 11-0 and in national championship games as the Huskies head coach, and you can now make that 11-1. and South Carolina's been the best women's uh, program over the last three or four years. Um, they have two national championships in that time frame. And uh, head coach Dawn Staley, she's building something good there uh, in Columbia. So um, congrats to the Gamecocks on the women's side. But all in all, again, just a fantastic March Madness tournament. I told you it was going to be one like we had never seen. Um, just with all the upsets. We had a 15 seed make it to the Elite Eight, something we've never seen before. So just a fantastic March, and uh, it makes me even more excited for next year's March Madness, which I hope to redeem myself in my bracket and picks uh, next year. But um, again, just fantastic tournament on both sides, men's and women's. But we'll move on to Major League Baseball, and we have officially reached opening day, which is always an exciting time of the year. Um, The season's starting probably a week or two later than it would have had we not had that uh, ongoing, you know, feud between the MLB and the MLBPA uh, with the collective bargaining agreement. But nonetheless, they reached an agreement, and so here we are at opening day. So what I'll do for this segment is we'll go division by division, and I'll give you my predictions on how I think each team is going to finish in their division. And so we'll start off in the National League, the National League East. Um, The defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves. I think they're going to uh, repeat their NL East crown. I know they lost Freddie Freeman, um, but... They still have a very good lineup. They re-signed Eddie Rosario. They also lost Jorge Soler. So you take out Freeman and Soler. Uh, But they did re-sign a 
a couple key pieces there. They still have a good rotation, one of the better bullpens in the National League. And then they to add to that bullpen, they re-signed uh, relief pitcher, closer, Kenley Jansen. So, um, uh, you know, I think their main competition would be the New York Mets, who I think are going to finish second. And that's simply because of their rotation, which has been in all kinds of trouble here with injury news. Uh, the Mets, of course, have Jacob deGrom. They signed Max Scherzer in free agency, multiple Cy Young winner. And then they also uh, signed Chris Bassett in free agency as well. So uh, they have three legitimate starting pitchers that I think might rival any of top-end rotation in the entire MLB. But the problem is, is Jacob deGrom. This past week, he was diagnosed with a stress fracture in his right scapula. So he is shut down for a minimum of four weeks. And um, to add to that... Max Scherzer, their other ace, has been dealing with the right hamstring tightness. So he's probably going to miss the first week or so of the season. So if they can get if they can get those two guys healthy, by midseason the Mets will be uh and you know, up to full health, you would presume, and uh would be ready to rock and roll. But I think uh, the Mets once they if they can just tread water until midseason I think they'll be really able to turn it on, but I think by that point the Braves will be too far in front of them to really catch. So I think the Braves will be one, the Mets will be two. Philadelphia Phillies I think are going to be three. They've made a couple of big offseason acquisitions headlined by outfielder Nick Castellanos. It's a big bat to add to that lineup. There already features Bryce Harper. So I like the Phillies to finish third. Miami Marlins, um, you know, they, they signed Jorge Soler away from Atlanta, so I do like that. They have good young pitching, Sandy Alcantara. Okay, I think they're going to finish uh, fourth in that division, and I think the Washington Nationals are going to finish last in the NL East. Um, moving over to the National League Central, Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, they have probably the second-best rotation in the National League with Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, uh, and Freddie Peralta, and then their lineup, um, you know, is, is very good. I think, I think the Brewers are going to win the NL Central, followed by the St. Louis Cardinals. I think the Cardinals have a legit chance to make the playoffs as a wild card team. Uh, I don't think they're going to win the NL Central, but I do think the Cardinals will be up there. Uh, the Chicago Cubs, uh, I think they're pretty much solidly in that three spot in the NL Central because they're better than Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, but I don't think they're as good as Milwaukee or St. Louis. Of course, they lost Javier Baez. They traded Anthony Rizzo at the deadline last year. So I just I don't see the Cubs um, really being in contention for a playoff spot this year. <clears throat> I just mentioned them a while ago, the bottom two teams in the NL Central, Cincinnati Reds um, and the Pittsburgh Pirates, I think. The Reds will end up finishing fourth um, just because their lineup's a little better. Pittsburgh is just Pittsburgh. Uh, they got a lot of young talent. Pirates will probably, probably be really good in the next three to five years, but uh, not this year. Uh, they might finish with the worst record in baseball. Over in the National League West, the Los Angeles Dodgers, I think you know with the acquisition of Freddie Freeman uh, into that lineup that already is very potent, you know, they have Walker Bueller, Julio Urias at the top of the uh, rotation there. And then they got traded for Craig Kimbrell, you know, to replace Kenley Jansen. So I, I do believe that uh, the Dodgers are going to 
uh, stay. You know, they, they lost. They were second in the division last year. I think they're going to win it this year and um, really make some noise. I, I do believe that the second best team in that division is the San Diego Padres. I know the Giants won the division last year, but I just think that the Padres have made enough moves. Um, you know, they're going to miss Fernando Tatis for probably the first two or three months of the year as he recovers from that uh, that injury that he sustained, uh, you know, in the off season. But I, I like the Padres, that lineup. Uh, give me the Padres to finish second, and then I think the San Francisco Giants are going to finish third. Now, they did go out and get Carlos Rodon, but they did lose Chris Bryant. So um, I think the Giants are probably going to be sitting in that three spot, but I do believe that the three spot in the NL West is still very capable of securing a wild card spot. So keep an eye on that. But the fourth team in the NL West, the Colorado Rockies, uh, they signed Chris Bryant to a mega contract, but they're certainly not as good as the other three teams that I just mentioned. And then the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, they're last in the NL West. They're going to finish down where the Pittsburgh Pirates are in terms of record. But moving over to the American League, the American League East, all right, uh, I, I like the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I picked them last year to make it pretty far into the playoffs, but uh, this year they're even better. Uh, they did lose Robbie Ray, but they signed Kevin Gossman, and that lineup is just, I mean, who do you pitch to in that lineup? Uh, Bichette, Springer, Teo Oscar Hernandez, Lord Scuriel. You know, who who do you feel comfortable pitching to in that lineup? And that's just, that lineup's going to score runs. Of course, you got Vlad Guerrero Jr., who was an MVP candidate last year. Um, give me the Blue Jays to win the AL East. I think the Tampa Bay Rays are still good enough to uh, compete for that second spot in the AL East uh, ahead of the Yankees and the Red Sox. Um, I just don't trust the Yankees' rotation very much so I like the Rays to to squeak in in that two spot um, ahead of New York and Boston uh, I think the Yankees and Red Sox are going to fight it out for that third spot I do like Boston simply because uh, they acquired Trevor Story to play second base to go with Xander Bogarts Rafael Devers JD Martinez I just think the Red Sox lineup is better than the Yankees lineup all the way across the board so give me the Red Sox to finish third and uh, the New York Yankees to finish fourth in the AL East. And then Baltimore Orioles, they're, uh, they're going to finish last uh, by a mile. They're gonna, the Orioles, Pirates, and Diamondbacks are going to f- probably compete for the worst record in the league. So uh, the AL Central, well, I didn't forgot to mention with Boston, starting pitcher Chris Sale, he was placed on the 60-day injured reserve list with a right rib stress fracture. So like Jacob deGrom, of course, Chris Sale is one of the best pitchers in baseball when he's healthy, but he's 33 years old, hasn't really been in the lineup consistently. He didn't get in the lineup till the end of the year last year after coming off Tommy John surgery. And they say the best ability is availability, and Chris Sale's not really available a whole lot. So um, I think, uh, you know, Boston has enough to make up for it um, because they did last year. But, um, yeah, Sale, is it's tough to see that because he is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Uh, over in the AL Central, I like the Chicago White Sox, everything about that team. The lineup is insane. You guys, you know, between Jose Abreu, Eloy Jimenez, they can just mash it. Then they have good top-of-the-order guy in Tim Anderson. 
to go with a solid bullpen uh, with one of the best closers in Liam uh, Hendricks. So uh, the White Sox, though, one of their starting pitchers, Lance Lynn, he's out for four weeks with a slight tear in one of his right knee tendons. So uh, they'll miss him for the first month of the year. Uh, hopefully he can avoid surgery there. But I still like the White Sox because the AL Central is not a competitive division at all. Uh, I do think the Minnesota Twins have made enough noise, with, especially with the signing of Carlos Correa, um, that I think they're going to be second in the NL, or the AL Central. And then the surprise, I think the Detroit Tigers are going to make some noise, uh, more so than they have the last few years. I think the Tigers are going to finish third in the Central, uh, simply because uh, you know they have Eduardo Rodriguez to kind of anchor their rotation, and a couple of young pitchers, and Casey Mize and Tariq Skubal. Um, I think that lineup, they just went out and acquired Austin Meadows, which we'll talk about in Around the Island. <clears throat> Javier Baez, they signed in free agency. So the Tigers are much improved. So I like the Tigers. Uh, I'm not sure they're quite ready to make the jump into the wild card spot just yet, uh, but I do believe that they're going to finish uh, middle of the pack in that division. Kansas City Royals, I think, are going to finish fourth. Uh, young phenom shortstop Bobby Witt Jr. is... Um, made the opening day roster. He's, I think he's going to help carry that team. A top of the order guy, five, five category player. And, uh, you know, the Royals went out and signed Zach Grinke as well, brought him back uh, to be one of their better uh, rotation guys. So I like the Royals to finish fourth in the AL Central. And then the Cleveland Guardians, right? It's no longer the Cleveland Indian in, in the Indians. It's the Cleveland Guardians, right? Which doesn't sound right. Still going to take a while to get used to. Um, they just don't have enough. Their lineup is is horrible outside of Jose Ramirez. Uh, Manuel Clase is one of the better closers in baseball. But that's that's not going to matter because they're going to be down in so many games that they're not really going to, uh, you know, have the opportunity to close as many games as, as one of the better teams. So giving the Guardians to finish last in the AL Central. Over in the AL West, um, I love the Seattle Mariners this year. All right, Seattle and Toronto, probably my two favorite teams in the American League. Uh, Seattle, I think, is going to win the AL West. Um, they did, uh, they're starting the year with young outfield phenom Jose, or uh, Julio Rodriguez, rather. He's made the opening day roster, and I think he's going to be an absolute spark plug in that order. He can do it all. He's got power, he's got speed. And so uh, the rotation, they signed Robbie Ray, AL Cy Young winner from a year ago. Um, they got a good rotation. And interesting thing about Seattle, I actually uh, last week ran into uh, the Seattle Mariners director of amateur scouting, Scott Hunter. He was at uh, a high school baseball game here in Texas scouting a, a player. And I had the privilege to have about an hour-long conversation with him. He gave me a lot of good inside info on what the Mariners are, are doing and how they're looking. And uh, he's he's a uh, Cautiously optimistic that the Mariners are, are not only going to make the playoffs, but make some noise in the playoffs. And um, I was also able to get some good insider info for my fantasy baseball draft uh, from from Mr. Hunter. So I do appreciate the conversation with him. Very cool to run into him. But yeah, give me the Mariners to win the AL West. That lineup is good. The rotation is good. And um, I, they're going to end the longest playoff drought in uh, Major League Baseball currently. I think the Houston Astros are going to finish second. All right, they still, yes, they lost Carlos Correa, Zach Greinke, uh, but they still have, you know, a good rotation. Lance McCullers, 
Luis Garcia, and then of course they still have, you know, Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve, Jordan Alvarez. They still have a very potent lineup. I just think that the Mariners are a better team, but give me the Astros to finish second in the AL West and get into a wild card spot. Uh, third in the AL West, I think the Los Angeles Angels. All right, they signed Noah Syndergaard uh, to be in the rotation. He's coming off Tommy John surgery. We'll see how he looks. Uh, Mike Trout should be healthy, and of course they have probably the most exciting player in all of baseball in Shohei Otani, pitcher, designated hitter. Um, you know, I think I think he's going to help keep the Angels solidly in that third spot because the Texas Rangers, I think they're going to be vastly improved. You know, they spent over five hundred million dollars in free agency on Marcus Simeon and uh, Corey Seager, John Gray to be their opening day starter uh, in their rotation. So I like the Rangers. Uh, they only won 60 games last year. I think they're going to make probably a 15-game improvement on that. I can see the Rangers winning 75 to 80 games this year, but I do think that's going to be good enough for fourth in the AL West. And then last place in the AL West, the Oakland A's. They have traded every good player they have, with the exception of Frankie Montas, which I would assume Montas would be gone before the end of the year. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean... I I think the A's are, are in rebuild mode. That's pretty apparent. So uh, I don't think they're going to be anywhere but the seller of the AL West. Um, my representative, uh, this is just kind of, th- those are the divisional predictions. Uh, Playoff-wise, it's a long way away, and I'll do several more of these playoff predictions by the time we get there. But um, I like either Seattle or Toronto to represent the American League in the World Series. Um I would probably lean towards Seattle just because of their depth in the rotation and the lineup. Uh, and then in the National League, I like the Dodgers, and I really like the Brewers this year. Um, I know the Braves are, are going to make some noise, but I like the Dodgers or the Brewers, but I, I personally think the Dodgers are going to represent the National League in the World Series. So uh, we'll have to stay tuned. Of course, we'll keep you up to date uh, as long as, as we go through this season here and uh, lots of lots of standings updates coming your way for Major League Baseball. We've got to figure out how we're going to do that. Uh, but, yeah, I'm excited. Opening day is here. It's a great time, and I'm looking forward to an exciting season of Major League Baseball. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update real quick here in the NHL. Uh, definitely approaching the end of the year. Last regular season game is Friday, April 29th. All right, so most teams have – anywhere between uh, 11 or 12 games left, roughly. So we're uh, just a few weeks away from the end of the year. Uh, We know in the Eastern Conference who the eight teams are going to be. We just don't have a definitive order at the moment. The Western Conference has been very wide open for much of the year, but we are um, getting to the point where we're starting to kind of hone in on uh, a, f- a few of those teams that are going to be on the bubble as opposed to a, a lot more that are uh, have been in contention. So the Western Conference is starting to get a little more clear. But we're going to start off real quick. These, of course, are wild card standings, top three teams in each division plus the two wild card teams. In the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division, the Carolina Hurricanes are up top with 98 points. They uh, are two points in front of the New York Rangers, who are second with 96 points. I didn't think the Rangers would catch the Hurricanes, but that's very much in play. Um, And we'll have to see how that goes. That would be big for New York. 
Certainly a fantastic turnaround for the Rangers this year. Third place in the Metropolitans, the Pittsburgh Penguins. They're at 92 points. So four points back of the Rangers and six points back of the Hurricanes as we sit right now. Over in the Atlantic Division, this has just been an absolute slugfest. The Florida Panthers, they're up top with 104 points. They have officially clinched a playoff spot. Um, They've won five in a row, eight out of their last ten, looking very formidable. And uh, they've been nicknamed the Cardiac Cats because uh, the other night they were down 5-1 to to the Toronto Maple Leafs. They came back and won 7-6 to in overtime. And in doing so, the Panthers became the third team in NHL history to have multiple four-goal comeback wins this season. Also, forward Jonathan Huberdeau, who's quickly uh, putting his name at the top of the Hart Trophy list, he officially set the NHL record for most assists in a single season by a left winger with 71. Now, he's since added to that. Um, he might finish the year with over 80 assists, which is insane. Uh, but nonetheless, the Panthers certainly look like they got the top spot in the Atlantic on lockdown because the Toronto Maple Leafs are second with 96 points, eight points back of the Panthers. All right, And then the third place in the Atlantic, the Tampa Bay Lightning with 93 points. So they're three points back of Toronto and 11 points back of Florida. So uh, I do believe Florida's going to win the Atlantic. Toronto and Tampa Bay keep flip-flopping. That'd be big for the Leafs to get home ice because those two teams would play each other in the first round if that is how the season ended with them uh, two and three. So uh, keep an eye on that. But Toronto, speaking of Toronto, Austin Matthews, he scored his 50th goal of the season last week, becoming the fourth Toronto Maple Leaf ever to score 50 goals in a year and the first since 1993-1994 when Dave Andrichuk did it. Matthews is also the first United States-born player to score 50 goals in a year since John LeClaire did it in 1996-1997 season. So huge year for Matthews, main reason why the Leafs are as good as they are. But the Atlantic division is just ferocious, man. Um, that's going to be fun to watch in the playoffs. And then the two wild card teams in the East at the moment, Boston Bruins have the first wild card spot with 93 points. And then Washington Capitals have the second with 84 points. So they're, they're nine points back. Um, I don't see that changing at this particular point. So I would assume that Boston's going to finish as wild card one. Washington will finish as wild card two. So that's the Eastern Conference. It's a, Like I said, the eight teams are, are pretty much set in stone. Uh, the order is still kind of flip-flopping. And um, Western Conference, though, has, has been wide open all year. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's quickly changing. In the Central Division of the Western Conference, the Colorado Avalanche, they have 106 points. They've been dominant all year. They also have officially clinched a playoff spot. Them and the Panthers, as it sits right now, are the only two teams that have clinched a playoff spot officially. Uh, the Avalanche, they are uh, an incredible team. They've won four in a row, eight out of their last ten. Would not want to see them in the first round of the playoffs or in the playoffs in general. They are going to win the Central Division Uh, because the Minnesota Wild are second with 91 points. They are 15 points back of the Colorado Avalanche. Now, Minnesota Wild forward Kirill uh, Kaprizov, he officially set the record for the most points by a Minnesota Wild player in a single season with 84. Doesn't seem like a whole lot of points, but the Wild have not been uh, a franchise for as long as a lot of these other teams. So 
Congrats to Kirill Kaprizov. He's been uh, an insane. I think he's got about 40 goals this year. Uh, well, the Wild look good. And, of course, they got Marc-Andre Fleury uh, to go with Cam Talbot, probably the best goaltending duo in the Western Conference. So uh, I think the Wild are solidly in that second spot there in the Central. And then the St. Louis Blues are currently third in the Central with 88 points. Okay, uh, They are four points clear of the Nashville Predators, five points clear of the Dallas Stars. So uh, I can see those teams, maybe those three teams will be fighting for that three spot and the other two teams will be fighting for wild card spots. But over in the Pacific Division, uh, the Calgary Flames are up top there with 91 points. There are four points in front of Edmonton. The Oilers have 87 points, although they're on a five-game winning streak. Uh, good time to play well for Edmonton. Then the Los Angeles Kings are third in the Pacific with 86 points. So Edmonton and L.A. are right there, uh, but there are a few few games behind uh, Calgary, who sits at 91 points. Now Calgary, uh, they lost forward Sean Monahan to long-term injured reserve, a season-ending surgery on his hip. So that's a big loss for the Flames. He's a good second-line centerman. Um, they'll miss him, but I still think the Flames have enough scoring and enough depth to win the Pacific. Your two wildcard teams in the Western Conference right now, currently the first wildcard spot is the Nashville Predators with 84 points, as I mentioned. Second wildcard spot at the moment is my Dallas Stars with 83 points. Quick note on the Stars, Joe Pavelski. He scored a goal against the, the San Jose Sharks, his former team, this past weekend, uh, meaning that he has now scored a goal against all 32 NHL teams. So pretty interesting note there for him. Uh, the Vegas Golden Knights are the first team out of the wild card spot with 82 points. They're just one point back of Dallas. Dallas has a couple games in hand on Vegas as it sits now. So I think the wild card race in the Western Conference is, is going to come down to the combination of St. Louis, Nashville, Dallas, Vegas, and maybe Los Angeles. All right. I think those uh, five teams are going to be you know, in the wild card hunt, the other two will finish third in their division. So um, Winnipeg has 76 points. They're uh, six points back of Vegas. I just don't see them uh, climbing up that that hill there in the last 11 games. So uh, I think we've kind of focused in on Nashville, Dallas, Vegas, St. Louis, and Los Angeles as those teams that are going to jockey for either a three spot in their division or or the two wild card spots. So the Western Conference is a little more narrow than it has been, but it's still there's still you know eleven or twelve games to be played for most of these teams. So um, it's going to be exciting to see how it finishes. Now, if you've been paying attention to the NHL segment uh, for the last couple months, as a Stars fan, I've just been kind of giving them a lot of hell about being not you know not a good team, giving up leads, not being consistent in winning, and so I think. Um, I've said that they're not going to make the playoffs, but this is the first time that I've actually, uh, at least in the last several episodes, that I've strongly considered that they might actually make the playoffs. All right, um, they made a couple of solid trade deadline acquisitions that have helped, and so I think um, they kept John Klingberg. So I do think Dallas is is going to be certainly in the mix for a wild card spot. I don't see them catching St. Louis, but. Um, I think Dallas, if they continue to play, they've won seven out of their last 10. 
So if they continue that, I think the Stars are going to be looking good for a wild card spot. But nonetheless, the NHL season, like I said, about three weeks left, a little less than three, yeah, about three weeks. 12 games for these teams, and so it's going to be an exciting finish. And uh, picture playoff picture might be a little more clear uh, next week when we do uh, our standings update. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, do a standings update, or actually a playoff picture here in the NBA. We are approaching the end of the NBA's regular season, which is scheduled to take place this weekend. Sunday, April 10th, is the very last day of the NBA's regular season. Most teams have either two or three games left. Uh, The NBA's play-in tournament starts April 12th with the playoffs starting April 16th. So by next week's episode, we will uh, officially know the final results. But what we do know in this week's results uh, is we know each of the 10 teams that will be participating in the play-in tournament slash playoffs for each conference. I'm just going to read through them real quick before we get into the matchups. The Eastern Conference, the six teams that are going to be officially in the playoffs at the moment uh, that are not in the play-in tournament, Miami Heat, Boston Celtics, Milwaukee Bucks, Philadelphia 76ers, Toronto Raptors, and Chicago Bulls. Those six teams are officially in the four teams that are going to be playing in the play-in tournament in the East, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Brooklyn Nets, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Charlotte Hornets. Okay, The Western Conference, we have five teams that have clinched a playoff spot, three teams that have clinched a play-in tournament spot. There's two teams that are subject to flip-flop, but as of right now, the Phoenix Suns, Memphis Grizzlies, Golden State Warriors, Dallas Mavericks, and Utah Jazz are all officially in the playoffs. The Los Angeles Clippers, New Orleans Pelicans, and San Antonio Spurs are officially in the play-in tournament. The only one that's subject to change right now is the number 6 seed Denver Nuggets and the number 7 seed Minnesota Timberwolves. Each of them have two games left. Minnesota wins out, Denver loses out. Uh, Minnesota would become the sixth seed pushing Denver into the play-in tournament. But nonetheless, those two teams are both in the playoffs or play-in tournament. So we know those are the 10 teams in each conference that are in. You'll notice the team that I did not call in the Western Conference is the Los Angeles Lakers. They were officially eliminated from playoff contention the other night uh, after losing their seventh game in a row, just absolutely putrid. So LeBron James is not in the playoffs this year. Uh, That's not something you hear very often. Um, It just was not a good season for the Lakers, and I would fully expect there to be a complete shakeup there in Los Angeles in the offseason. But moving to the playoff preview, okay, so the play-in tournament, right, you have three games for each conference. It's a 7-8 matchup, a 9-10 matchup. The the loser of 7-8 plays the winner of 9-10, all right, and that would be your third play-in game. So the way it works in the Eastern Conference as it sits now, number seven is Cleveland. The Cavs would play the number eight seed Brooklyn Nets. Okay, the winner of that game would be the actual seven seed in the playoffs. The loser of that game would then play the winner of the 9-10 matchup, which is currently the Atlanta Hawks and the Charlotte Hornets. Okay, real quick note on the Hawks. Trey Young had his 10th, 40th point 10th 40-point game of the season the other night, which is uh, tied for the most in the league this season. Just been on another level. So basically, the loser of the Hawks-Hornets game is eliminated. 
The winner plays the loser of the Cavs-Nets, and whoever wins that third play-in game would become your eight seed, clinching that final playoff spot. So how that looks now in the Eastern Conference, the top seed is the Miami Heat. They would play the eight seed, which is the winner of that third play-in game. Number two currently is the Boston Celtics. They are extremely hot. They've won eight out of their last ten. They would play the winner of the 7-8 matchup, all right, either Cleveland or Brooklyn at the moment. So the the 3-6 matchup in the East right now, three is Milwaukee, and the Bucks would play the number six Chicago Bulls if it started right now. The 4-5 matchup, four is Philadelphia, and the 76ers would play the number five Toronto Raptors if it were to start right now. <clears throat> Toronto's been very hot over the last month. So that would be a fantastic series. So that's how it looks in the East. Over in the Western Conference, all right, your top official seed clinched is the Phoenix Suns. They are top overall seed for the entire playoffs. So Phoenix is your top seed in the West. Number two seed in the West is clinched already. That's the Memphis Grizzlies, all right? So the way that the play-in tournament looks right now, your 7-8 matchup is number seven, Minnesota, against number eight, Los Angeles Clippers. All right, so if the Timberwolves, the Timberwolves and Clippers play, the winner of that game is going to move on to play Memphis as the seventh seed. All right, the loser of that game moves to the third game, which would be the winner of the 9-10 matchup between the New Orleans Pelicans and the San Antonio Spurs. Loser of that game is out. The winner moves on to play the loser of the T-Wolves-Clippers. And whoever won that third play-in game would be the eighth seed in the playoffs in the West and play the Phoenix Suns in the first round. Uh, so those are your those are your one v eight and two v seven matchups. Your three v six Golden State Warriors are third, sixth seed currently the Denver Nuggets. Four five matchup four is Dallas Mavericks. Uh, five is the Utah Jazz. What could happen in these last two games is Dallas could overtake Golden State uh, for that three spot. And Minnesota could overtake Denver for that sixth spot. So there's a little bit of movement that can happen in the West there. But uh, same thing with the East. The seeding is still a little bit up for grabs. It looks like um, Miami is going to be the number one seed uh, in the East just based on uh, their record. So, But nonetheless, we will have uh, a complete playoff preview, at least for the first round. Uh, on next week's episode as the uh, play-in tournament will have officially started by then. So we'll know. But nonetheless, uh, NBA season wraps up this weekend. We know who the playoff teams are, and uh, it's going to be exciting to see how the seeding all shakes out here this weekend. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across all of the various sports. We got a pretty good collection of info for you this week in this segment. We're going to start off in the National Football League. There's been several trades that have gone down this past week and a few more notable free agent signings. The biggest trade to go down was between the Philadelphia Eagles and the New Orleans Saints, and it involved eight draft picks and zero players. Okay, they just traded draft picks back and forth. Basically, in this trade, Philadelphia Eagles received the number 18 overall pick this year, as well as a third rounder and seventh rounder this year, a first-round pick next year in 2023, and a second-round pick in 2024. That's a lot 
basically uh, first round pick, first, third, and seventh this year, first next year, and a second in 2024. So what did New Orleans receive? Well, they got two first round picks this year. They got uh, number 16 and 19 picks in this year's draft, along with a sixth round pick in this year's draft. So New Orleans has two first round picks. Basically, at the end of this trade, the Eagles have uh, picks 15 and 18 in this year's draft. They had three first round picks. They just traded one of them to New Orleans. So Philly ends up with 15 and 18, uh, along with a first next year. And then New Orleans got Philadelphia's third first round pick from this year to give them picks 16 and 19. So basically, they gave up next year's first-round pick to get an extra first-rounder this year. So it's clear that they have their eye on somebody, uh, presumably a quarterback. Uh, I would certainly think Malik Willis would be a possibility if he's still there. But this means that the Philadelphia Eagles pick directly in front of the New Orleans Saints for both of their first-round picks. So Philadelphia has 15, New Orleans has 16. Philadelphia has 18, New Orleans has 19. So the Saints didn't even move in front of Philadelphia. Just an interesting trade. Lots of of moving parts to that with no players being involved. But, um, you know, New Orleans clearly has their eye on somebody. So we'll find out here in just under a month's time uh, who that is. Uh, Another trade that went down, the New England Patriots and the Miami Dolphins. The Patriots acquired wide receiver Devontae Parker, and a fifth-round pick in this year's draft from the Dolphins in exchange for a third-round pick next year in 2023. This is a win for both teams, I think. It gives uh, New England a solid wide receiver for Mac Jones. Parker's probably wide receiver one in New England now. Uh, And then that third-round pick next year gives Miami two first-round picks, a second-round pick, and two third-round picks. So they have five picks in the first three rounds next year in 2023's draft. And that's in addition to all the moves they've made this year. So Miami is in very good position to continue their, uh, well, I think they pretty much quit their rebuild this offseason by the moves that they've made. They're, the Dolphins are now in win-now mode, all right? And so I think all the draft picks next year help keep them there. Uh, Just a few notable free agent signings. The Los Angeles Rams, okay, they signed all-pro linebacker Bobby Wagner. Five years, $50 million deal. He was probably the biggest free agent on the market, and he goes to the Rams. Um, Do the Rams not have a salary cap, or uh, what are we doing here? Because it seems like uh, they have zero draft picks, pretty much, and all they do is give out big free agent contracts. So I'm wondering at what point their salary cap comes into the fold because it certainly doesn't seem like they uh, have one. But uh, nonetheless, good signing for the Rams. Uh, Minnesota Vikings, they re-signed veteran corner Patrick Peterson to a one-year deal. New Orleans Saints re-signed safety P.J. Williams to a one-year deal. And then the Atlanta Falcons, they signed linebacker Rashawn Evans, former first-round pick of the Titans just a few years ago, to a one-year deal. And this deal reunites Rashawn Evans with Atlanta Falcons head coach Arthur Smith, who was the defensive coordinator at Tennessee while Evans was there. And then the biggest re-signing was the Buffalo Bills. They re-signed wide receiver Stephon Diggs to four years, $104 million. 
seventy million guaranteed. The wide receiver money that we've seen this year uh, in the last few weeks has been absolutely bonkers. Um, twenty-five to thirty million dollars a year for for a top flight wide receiver these days, which is just incredible. Some strange news, though, and uh, from coaching. <clears throat> Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Last week, uh, Bruce Arians stepped down from the head coaching position and moved over to the Bucks' front office. Okay, uh, Defensive coordinator Todd Bowles was immediately named the new head coach of the Buccaneers. This was pretty interesting de- decision for Arians because of uh, the timing of it, right? He just got Tom Brady back, right? Brady unretires, rejoins the Buccaneers. They re-signed Leonard Fournette, re-signed Chris Godwin. They got the pieces in place from pretty much the same team, all right? Uh, Bruce Arians knows this team's going to be good, and rather than have Todd Bowles take over a bad team, say, next year or one that's in transition, he will pass the torch over to Todd Bowles right now, allowing him to take over a good team with a legitimate chance to win. But we had another retirement uh, in the NFL this past week. Longtime NFL running back Frank Gore is going to call it quits after 16 years in the NFL. It's a five-time Pro Bowler, the NFL's third all-time leading rusher with 16,000 yards. And he signed a one-day contract with the San Francisco 49ers to retire as a member of the 49ers. So uh, I think just based on his resume, he never really was truly an elite running back. Um, he was a great running back for a lot of his career, very available, which again, best ability is availability. He never really missed a whole lot of time. Uh, and that led him all the way up to number three, all time in rushing yards in NFL history. So I think just based on that, he probably will get into the hall of fame, but, um, he certainly, uh, is going to, uh, be remembered for sure especially one of those great Miami teams he was a part of in college. Moving over to the National Hockey League, uh, two more retirements to discuss there. Longtime Anaheim Ducks captain Ryan Getzlaff announced that he's retiring at the end of this season. Of course, the Ducks are out of the playoffs, and um, so Getzlaff only has about 11 games left in the league. This is his 17th season in the league. All of them have been played with Anaheim. He's won one Stanley Cup made three all-star games, he's won two Olympic gold medals with Team Canada, and he owns several Anaheim franchise records. He's also going to finish his career with uh, just under 1,000 points in just over 1,100 NHL games, so almost a point-per-game guy over 1,100 games. I'd say that's a pretty solid candidate for the NHL's Hall of Fame, but uh, time is going to tell on that. I think the Stanley Cup certainly helps that resume. And then longtime NHL forward Marion Hosa has officially announced that he is going to be officially retired after this season. Now, Hosa has spent 19 years in the NHL. He had 525 goals, 1,134 points in 1,309 NHL games. Three-time Stanley Cup champion, five-time All-Star, but he actually has not played a game in the NHL in several seasons. Uh, due to a medical issue, but his contract didn't expire until the end of this season, so that's why he's calling it quits now, officially being retired. But he was actually elected into the Hockey Hall of Fame back in uh, 2020, so interesting. You don't really see too many retirements after you're already elected into the Hall of Fame, but such is the case with Marion Hosa. Now, over in Major League Baseball, we have just did the, uh, you know, 
divisional preview for the season opening day here. We got a few trades that happened over the past week. The Los Angeles Dodgers and the Chicago White Sox. The Dodgers traded outfielder A.J. Pollock to the White Sox in exchange for Craig Kimbrell. I mentioned this uh, in that preview. It's a good trade for both teams. Pollock, very solid. He's going to start in right field on opening day. Craig Kimbrell wasn't going to close in Chicago behind Liam Hendricks, so he moves over to the Dodgers where he should uh, be their everyday closer uh, on a good team that's going to win probably 100 games. So that's good for Kimbrell's uh, fantasy value. San Diego Padres, they acquired starting pitcher Sean Manaya from the Oakland A's, right? He was one of their fire sale moves in, in exchange for two prospects, all right? This is just, like I said, Oakland is a complete dumpster fire right now. They're trading everybody with a pulse. And in fact, when this trade happened, Sean Manaya was actually supposed to start spring training game for the A's against the Padres. But that trade happened, and literally, Manaya just traded locker rooms, went over to San Diego's clubhouse, and uh, put on a Padres uniform and pitched against the A's when this trade went down. So pretty interesting there. This trade, uh, I kind of mentioned also in that preview, the Detroit Tigers, they acquired outfielder Austin Meadows from the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for shortstop Isaac Paredes and a draft pick. Meadows is a, certainly capable of hitting 25 to 30 home runs. Uh, he's going to fit nicely in that 3-4 spot in the Tigers lineup that's been revamped this year. I think he's going to be a big piece as to why the Tigers are going to be on the rebound. One contract re-signing, the Cleveland Guardians. They re-signed all-star third baseman Jose Ramirez to a five-year, $124 million extension. Just absurd money, but Ramirez is one of the best all-around players in the game, certainly on the offensive side. Uh, so he is stuck in Cleveland for at least the next five years. A couple of interesting Pieces of info here in Major League Baseball. This season, uh, MLB umpires are going to conduct in-park announcements during the replay review process. All right, This is similar to the NFL and the NHL, where the referees make an announcement about uh, the replay reviews you know, on the microphone while they're on the field or the ice. So they're going to, MLB umpires are going to start doing that, which I think is good. I mean, if you, if you have to review something, I think it should be public knowledge, what the call is, you know, and what the, why the justification is like they do with challenges or touchdown reviews in the NFL or offsides reviews in the NHL or goal reviews, something like that. And then the other piece of interesting news from Major League Baseball is also regarding this upcoming season. Pitchers and catchers are going to have the option to new uh, to use some newly tested signaling devices as they decide what pitches to throw to hitters this season. All right, so the technology is called PitchCom, and basically it uses a pad with some buttons on the wrist of your glove hand. All right, catchers can signal pitches, pitch type, and location with the suggested selection directly to the pitcher through a listening device. It sounds highly complicated, but this has been tested. Apparently it's worked. Now, the whole idea behind this is to prevent sign stealing, which has become a big issue since the 2017 Houston Astros uh, were caught stealing signs during their World Series run. So anything electronic certainly is going to help prevent sign stealing, um, but that's just been such a part of baseball for 100-something years that, you know, it's just not going to feel right, I guess. It, it Electronic signs will 
almost feel like cheating in a way. Uh, real quick to finish up Major League Baseball, the Oakland A's. I've mentioned multiple times so far their fire sale, right, of good players. Well, their payroll this year is $33 million, all right? Their payroll in 1991, which was the highest in Major League Baseball at that time, was $33 million. So in 91, they had the highest payroll in the league with $33 million. This year, their payroll is $33 million now, as it sits after they've traded everybody, which is the second lowest in the league behind the Baltimore Orioles at $32 million. So uh, I just thought that was interesting. The A's have um, the second lowest uh, salary you know, payroll this year, uh, which was the same as uh, 1991 when they were a very good team with the highest payroll in the league. So interesting news there. Uh, over in the National Basketball Association, the 2022 uh, Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame class was announced. I'm just going to run through these names real quick, not, not give you a whole lot of info. You probably recognize some of them. Um, the ones, the people that were elected into the Hall of Fame, Hugh Evans was a referee for 28 years, uh, refed over 1,900 games. Manu Ginobili, obviously San Antonio Spurs, two-time All-Star, four-time NBA champion. Tim Hardaway, 13 seasons in the league. His kid now is a Dallas Maverick. Bob Huggins is a coach. He's the head coach at West Virginia University. Uh, George Carl was a coach, 27 years as a head coach in the NBA. Um, on the women's side of things, Swin Cash, WNBA player, four, four-time All-Star there. Uh, Marion Staley is a coach. She had a combined 45 years uh, coaching experience. Currently serves as the head coach of the WNBA's Indiana Fever. And Lindsey Whalen, she's a player, five-time WNBA All-Star, four-time WNBA champion. All right, so she got in. Uh, Lou Hudson is a player back from the 60s and 70s. He got in, and then several others, Larry Costello uh, and Del Harris. They're both contributors, uh, mentors, assistant coaches, that kind of stuff. Um, Teresa Shank-Grentz, member of the um, All-American team at Immaculata University back in the 70s. So uh, another another female into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And that's it. So uh, pretty, you know, pretty recognizable names on there, especially with Manu Ginobili, uh, Tim Hardaway, George Carl, Swin Cash. You know, they're all very deserving of that. So that is your uh, Basketball Hall of Fame class here in 2022. We're going to finish this thing up, though, with some college news. Uh, in men's college basketball, St. Peter's head coach Shaheen Holloway talked all about him past couple episodes about how he led St. Peter's to the Elite Eight, just a fantastic coach, a no-sweat attitude, really, really rubbed off on his players. Uh, well, he's cashed in on his Cinderella success, all right? Shaheen Holloway was named the new head coach of the Seton Hall Pirates, which is his alma mater, all right? Holloway played there for four years, was a standout from 96 to 2000. He's a terrific coach, like I said, just a, a great leader of men, and uh, I'm glad that he gets to go coach his alma mater. Now, after that was announced, it was announced that St. Peter's, their three biggest star players from their Elite Eight team that we just saw, Daryl Banks, Doug Edert, and Matthew Lee, 
are all leaving the St. Peter's basketball program and have officially entered the transfer portal. All right, so that's not surprising. Uh, Holloway is now the coach at Seton Hall, and I would fully suspect all three of them to either end up at Seton Hall or strongly considering uh, strongly consider transferring to Seton Hall. You know, Seton Hall's a perennial tournament team, so I don't see why they wouldn't consider transferring there, especially to play for Holloway. So keep an eye on that. Uh, Kentucky forward Oscar Shibway. He won the John R. Wooden Award as the nation's most outstanding player. Uh, just an absolute beast on the glass. He had led the NCAA with 28 double-doubles this season, um, which is damn near one per game, including 16 straight to end the year. All right, He had he had one in there lost to St. Peter's in the first round of the tournament as well. So uh, certainly a first-round pick. Uh, the kid is just he's super athletic, good size, and um, no surprise that he uh, got the Wooden Award. The final piece of news from college athletics is just uh, the college athletics in general. Big 12 commissioner Bob Bullsby, all right, he announced that he is stepping away from his role as the commissioner of the Big 12 later this year. Uh, he has been the commissioner of the Big 12 since 2012. Now, the Big 12 obviously is about to get a huge shakeup here in the next uh, couple years with Texas and Oklahoma jetting for the SEC. So, uh, it'd be interesting to see who steps into that new commissioner's role with a, a conference that's going to look a whole lot different here in about a year and a half. But that is going to wrap up the 70th episode of the Sports Island podcast. Uh, what a terrific week. We're at Masters week, uh, end of the NBA regular season. Uh, just so much going on. Baseball opening day is here. So like I said, just a terrific week in sports. Uh, I will certainly be watching as much of the Masters as possible, uh, tune into some baseball this weekend, and um, some NHL hockey too. It's That's coming down to the wire. So uh, whatever your sport of choice is, you certainly have uh, quite the viewing scene in this next week. So we'll, we'll get you caught up on everything on next week's episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.